This man that you see here is, uh, is Milton Lichtman, and he's, but he's also known by his stage name, uh, which is Jan Layton. Now, he, he died in 2009 at the age of 87, so he had a very long life. Uh, but for over 30 years, his primary claim to fame was appearing in commercials as famous historical figures. He lit a cigar as Fidel Castro in a commercial for uh, lighters. He sold cars as Albert Einstein uh, for a Southern California car dealership, promoted a Minnesota savings bank as Abraham Lincoln, and touted an Arizona department store as Robert E. Lee. I wonder when that was. You would not get away with that today, I don't think. Um, for one bank commercial, he, pro he portrayed four different historical figures all complaining about what other banks uh, charged for their checks. He's pitched cereal as Alexander Hamilton. He's sold beer as Johann Sebastian Bach, early mobile phones as Count Dracula, and cough syrup as Frankenstein. Uh, let's see, among others, he has also portrayed Harpo Marx, Babe Ruth, Saddam Hussein, Gandhi, Mozart, Sherlock Holmes, Ebenezer Scrooge, John Wayne, Ben Franklin, Pope John Paul II, and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, even Margaret Thatcher was in his repertoire. <laughs> Asked once how he was doing, he replied, I'm alive and well and living in someone else's face. The Guinness Book of World Records credits him as the actor who has played the most roles and had the most disguises, 1,200 on TV and 1,800 more on radio. In May of 1989, New York Magazine published a feature story on him calling him the man of a thousand faces. By the end of his career, Mr. Lichtman had reportedly professionally portrayed 3,372 historical figures. The New York Times called him the actor who played everyone. No wonder he said, heaven for me is to lie in a bed with no costume, living in my own face and not someone else's, and luxuriate in my own skin. Well, Milton obviously had a bit of an identity crisis. And I guess when you've been 3,372 other people, that's sort of an occupational hazard. But how about you? Do you know who you are? There's a well-known story that's told about Margaret Thatcher during the time she was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. She was visiting an old people's home, going from room to room, meeting senior citizens who'd lived there for a very long time. One old lady showed no sign of realizing that she was shaking hands with a world-famous politician. Do you know who I am? asked Mrs. Thatcher. No, dear, replied the old lady, but I would ask the nurse if I were you. She usually knows. <laughs> From where do you draw your identity? Is there a nurse in your life that tells you who you are? Some find their identity in their political affiliation. Some find it in their job. You know, We say, I'm a teacher, I'm a fireman, I'm an underwriter, I'm a pastor. But you're really not. You teach children for a living. 
Some find it in their afflictions. I'm an addict. I'm a cancer patient. Some find it in the groups they belong to, which is, I find, particularly true in high school. You're either a cool kid or a smart kid or a redneck or a geek or a jock or a band member. There's probably some other categories I'm not aware of anymore, but those are the ones I could think of. And you see, when our identity is rooted and grounded in our belief systems, which are obviously influenced by jobs and politics and afflictions and causes and all those things, it really affects how we engage in or respond to hard conversations. What a difference it could make if we were to understand where our truest identity comes from and respond from that place rather than from all of these other places that make up our false self. And that's what we're going to look at today. As we look at this fourth affirmation in the series of five affirmations that all relate to this topic of having hard conversations. So I want to recap a little bit where we've been before we move on to uh, today. So the very first week of this, we looked at affirmation number one, which says that God has all truth, but we don't have a perfect understanding of it. Just kind of makes sense, right? We, we, God's got all the truth. We think, you know, that it's simply the Bible, and then we forget all of the ways people have misinterpreted the Bible over the years, believing they were in truth, when in fact they weren't. Affirmation number two is that being loving is as important as being right. And see, sometimes we need to maybe sacrifice our need to be right in order to love the other person. Affirmation number three, which we talked about last week, is that the Spirit can create unity where it once seemed impossible. And if you remember, we talked about this conflict that was going on in the church and how um, these two sides were uh, sort of allayed against each other and uh, that the Holy Spirit brought revelation and truth and with it unity came as a result. And then for today, we're going to look at this one that says we can find our identity in Christ, not in our belief systems. All right? And so we're going to look at a, a, a passage of scripture from the book of Galatians. Um, but this is really an issue that Paul addressed over and over again. And uh, this, his letter to the Galatians is no exception to this. Now, in all likelihood, it's pretty, um, well, I would say most scholars believe that Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians before the, the event that we talked about last week occurred. Okay, that was Acts 15 where they got together and they sort of hammered out this agreement, Holy Spirit led, about how the Gentile Christians were going to be, at, what they were going to be asked to do. Remember, there was the argument. Um, and so even though the letter is silent and we don't really know the date of it, most of the scholars believe the silence of the letter is, is a deafening silence, meaning that because Paul was going to such great lengths to make to, to, to deal with this issue, it seems very unlikely that he would not have brought up what had happened in Acts 15 if it had already occurred. So we're assuming that it had not yet occurred. 
because otherwise he would have said, well, this, we, we've already decided this, and here's what the answer is. So we're pretty sure that uh, this letter was written prior to that. And so last week we talked about the culmination of this argument, you know, that's been going back and forth, and it's really a question of, well, what does it take to be a Christian? And in a sense, this is a question of Christian identity. Peter, among others, were arguing that Gentile Christians must draw their identity from the identity of the Jews and follow their laws and their traditions. And of course, Paul was of the side that we're arguing on, on the uh, side of grace, that they don't have to do that because grace has freed us. And Jesus um, has freed us from all of those strictures of the law. And so when these parties finally sat down and they had this hard conversation, I highlighted how the Spirit brought into what looked like this impossible deadlock, how, they brought, how the Spirit brought unity into the midst of it. And so in his letter to the Galatians, Paul is addressing this issue once again. Um, and in chapter 2, verse 20, he makes a statement about, Christian, about a Christian's identity using himself as an example. And he said this, this is Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live by, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now he speaks of himself as a Jew who had become Christian, although they really weren't called that yet, but that's what he's alluding to. And he does this to make a point. We Jews, he says, even though we were born into this covenant family, do not now find our real identity as God's people through those things which marked us out as distinctive. And what he's talking about is the Jewish law. And so if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and if you don't, then there's no Christianity. So if we believe that, then we believe that the crucified Jesus is the Messiah. And he goes on to say, if we are in the crucified Jesus, then that means that our previous identities are irrelevant. They're to be forgotten. We're no longer defined by possession of the law or by all of its detailed requirements that set the Jew against the Gentile. He says, I died to the law that I might live to God. And so we must now learn who we are in a whole new way. And then, so who are we? Well, we are the Messiah's people with his life now at work in us. And since the central thing about Jesus is his loving faithfulness, the central thing about us, in fact, the only thing that defines us is our own loving faithfulness. The glad response of faith in God who has sent his son to die for us. That's the very heart of Christian identity. And this is the identity that we need to bring into all of the hard 
and difficult conversations that we may have. So how does all of this relate to having a hard conversation with someone about a particularly controversial issue? Well, I think first and foremost, we have to understand and then avoid the dead ends that can happen in conversations like this. And several years ago, some researchers from Harvard did some investigation into the nature of difficult conversations and tried to figure out, well, how, how can you do these well? Right, because that's you know they, they tend to be messy, and people get upset, you know, emotional, and, and and so, how do we how do we do that? What's the best way, the best approach to take in doing this? And what they concluded were that there were um, that in the very most difficult conversations, there are two potential dead ends that we always want to try and avoid. The first dead end is to get stuck on the question of what happened. And it turns out that people simply cannot agree on the answer to this question, particularly when emotions are high, right? Um, and so what you find is that often the, the two sides of an issue are so dead set on what they believe the facts to be, and they're trying to, that trying to just resolve the question of what happened ends up being pretty fruitless. And I mean, I, we use this example quite often, but... You know, just think of two people who observe a traffic accident and then go to each one and have them describe what happened. The odds are you're going to hear two very different stories. I mean, they may or may not even get the color of the cars correct. Um, and that's just human nature. You know, we all, we've, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, we're all wired differently. We're all put here for different purposes. God has gifted us each individually and uniquely. And so that's the framework through which we're observing these things. And so our attention is naturally drawn to one thing or another. It might be the color of the cars. It might be the sound the wreck made. It might be the disposition afterwards. You know, there's a thousand different variables that uh, you could focus on in, in something like that. And... Um, so then trying to agree on exactly what started all this is pointless because we're all going to see it through our own filter. And the second dead end is to try to convince the other party of our good intentions while simultaneously distrust, distrusting theirs. <laughs> you see, it turns out that intentions are pretty difficult to talk about. If someone gets offended by something that I've said, it doesn't do me really much good to tell them that I didn't mean to do that. The, the damage is already done, right? If someone felt that my words were cold and unfeeling, to tell them that that's not what I intended to happen is another dead end. And the second thing that they found was really this. It was to remember who you truly are and who the other person is too. See, the conclusions of their research bore a remarkable similarity to the key tenets of the New Testament. Funny how that would happen. At Harvard, no less. 
You see, the key to moving forward in a difficult conversation is to find your identity in Christ independent of what the other side says or does. Even if you feel accused, attacked, misunderstood, the other person's opinion of you does not shape your identity. Jesus does. And even if you believe that this other person is deeply misguided and deceived, then you still choose to believe that he or she is made in the image of God and is also loved by Jesus. And so if you start from this foundation, then I think many of the most difficult conversations that you have can move forward in very unexpected ways. But, you say, this is personal. These conversations are not hypothetical to me. I'm feeling attacked and misheard if I'm hurt at all. And I'm deeply hurt. And I'm emotional and I feel anxious about where all this is going to go. What do you do then? Well, three things. I think, first of all, you have to know your limits. You see, we all have a capacity for just how much of a difficult conversation we can handle. And there are times when it is health, the healthiest thing you can do is to just do your best to walk away from a situation. It doesn't mean that the other side wins. And it doesn't mean that you are weak. It simply means that you're recognizing that you are, in fact, a being with limits. Now, it's not so much, I guess, relative to hard conversation, um, but I have reached my limit with politics at this point. I, I don't know why I'm going down this road. Um, I think they're all a bunch of clowns, personally. Democrat and Republican. I don't see anybody doing anything for the good of the country. They're all out for what they can get for themselves or for their own particular party. And I'm done with it. I'll pay attention from a peripheral standpoint just so that I'm not completely uninformed. But I'm not paying attention to it anymore. It's just not, it's, it's like total political theater. And I just can't abide it anymore. And so I'm, I, that's my, I, you know, that's a recognition of a limit, right? You get to a point, it's like, why am I putting myself through this? The answer is always the same, right? Trump is great. Trump is the devil. It's like, okay, you know, neither side wants to temper <laughs> that at all. So to heck with it. All right. Secondly, we need people who are going to lovingly support us. Now, what I'm not saying is that we should surround ourselves only with people who agree with us. Okay? Um, who are just going to say, oh, you're wonderful. Those other people, they don't know what they're talking about. You are the man. You are right. No. It means finding people who will pray with our hurts, who will empathize with the anxiety that we're having, and pray for us with faith 
and in love. See, to me, this is a huge part of the answer to the question, why do I need to go to church? See, it is true that there are a lot of commands in the New Testament that, talk, that, that really can only be fulfilled by the church. Okay? But telling somebody that that's why they need to come is not likely to make much of an impression. But if you tell them that it's a place that you will find the best kind of family who will walk with you through the good and the bad, then you're giving them a reason to come here that directly impacts their life. And I could not have come up with a better example of that than what we saw today. Mark and Michelle realize that this family has walked with them through all of those things and will continue, good or bad or otherwise. And I know there are many others of you in here who could say the same thing. And so that's what we do is we find someone, some group, who's going to support us and to walk with us when we're going through those tough times. And third, we need to identify with Christ's humanity. You may not be aware, and I, I, I'm not going to be able to pull out the exact theological argument, but this was a big discussion in the early church. You know, this was a big point of theological contention as to whether Jesus was human. You know, well, was he 75% God and 25% human? Was he all one or all the other? Was he actually God, but he only appeared sort of like a spirit being as human? And so what the church finally concluded was he was completely both. Completely God, completely man. It's a mystery we don't understand. But what we do find is that throughout the Gospels there's evidence of a wide range of emotions that Jesus experienced. He experienced disappointment. You know, Philip asked him at one point that he was looking for more proof in order to believe. That's got to have disappointed him. He was experiencing tiredness when he sat down at Jacob's well in Samaria and sent his disciples on to buy supplies. He was very clearly experiencing anger when he threw the merchants out of the temple. He was experiencing suffering as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. Jesus experienced love as he did when he wept for Lazarus. And the people observing him said, see how much he loved him. He experienced empathy like the time that he provided more wine at the wedding of Cana. He experienced human understanding as when he comforted the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. He displayed a firmness when he did not deny his kingship before Pilate when asked. And he displayed humility when he asked his disciples 
to, to pray with him before his impending death. He was often misunderstood and persecuted, and he found himself feeling emotions from anger to sadness to exhaustion. We won't walk through this life without feeling the full range of human emotions. It's normal. And it's part of what it means to be human and to follow Jesus. And so we identify with Christ's humanity. Some of you may recognize this pretty lady. Her name is Rhonda Rousey. And she was called by Sports Illustrated as the world's most dominant athlete. <clears throat> she was the first U.S. woman ever to win a medal in judo. She was the youngest woman ever to qualify for the Olympics at age 14. She was consistently one of the top three ranked judo champions in the world before transitioning into mixed martial arts, where she quickly dominated and became a world champion. She was 12-0 as an MMA fighter, and only one competitor had ever survived the first round with her. Eight of her 12 wins, her challengers were defeated in less than 60 seconds. And then in November 2015, she lost, and she lost badly. And in an interview shortly after that devastating loss, she said, I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And at that exact moment, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one cares about me anymore without this. Her whole identity was inseparable from her image as the most dominant athlete in the world. Without this, if she couldn't be this person, if she couldn't have this particular identity, if she couldn't be known for being this person, she was nothing. She was good for nothing. She was unlovable. Friends, I'd like to tell you this is, you know, sort of a one-of-a-kind story that Ms. Rousey is unique in her view of identity, but she's not. And I know as well as I know my own name that some of you believe your identity is rooted in your past and that whatever you have or have not done makes you good for nothing and unlovable, especially in the eyes of God. But I am here to tell you today, that is a lie. That is the biggest lie imaginable. And so, as we close today, I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to confront that lie. And the best way I can think of to do that is to go to a quiet place 
and ask God. Ask God what he really thinks of you. The answer is going to blow you away. Because it'll sound nothing like the lie that you've been telling yourself for so many years. God could not be more pleased. God could not be more happy with who you are. So stop believing the enemy's lies. I'd like to ask some folks to come up uh, and pray. Be in, in place for prayer. And I would encourage you in this way. If you have some need, we are seeing some amazing things happen in this church as it relates to prayer. I know Mark shared a little bit about his story. And you may remember that it was a number of weeks ago, all of the fathers came up and prayed for him. And I don't know exactly about the timing of that and the timing of what's occurred, but I know that happened before this did, okay? And I'm putting two and two together. And it was basically, it's a miracle. It was an impossible situation. The likelihood is that they were never going to conceive children on their own. And yet, or I should say, but God. <laughs> but God. I had a young man and his wife were here last week. I got a really nice email from them. They were uh, not from this area. They were from Northern Virginia, just passing through. God had directed them to come here. They didn't know why, but they were faithful. Came up for prayer afterwards. He had a, an ankle that always bothered him. Bunches of pins and plates and all that kind of stuff had put it back together. I think he was a, a BMX racer that had fallen a few times and it wasn't bothering him but it always does when the weather gets cold and damp well, he sent me an email on Tuesday and he said my ankle should be driving me crazy and it has not bothered me since you prayed for it on Sunday he prayed for his wife for some emotional pain that she was going through and God did a really cool thing with her so folks, we don't stand up here, we don't talk about this because uh, it's just something we feel like the church should do. We really believe it. And we've got proof that it works. And so if you're dealing with something and you've got one, two, three, five people standing up here, ready, willing, and able to pray with you about whatever is going on in your life, and you walk out of here today and you don't take advantage of that, shame on you. Ye of little faith. Come on now. There ought to be lines in front of these people every week. 
because you cannot sit there and tell me that everything is great with you every week. Right? Seriously. You going to make that claim? I'm a pastor, remember. It's just like talking to God. Okay, well, maybe not. Maybe that's a little bit of a reach. All right, we could turn the lights down. Hey, Jeff. Can I, are you done? Can I read something? Is it short? Ish. 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 All right. Um, I, I actually wasn't going to read this. Um, I was praying about um, just what, what God would have for us this week, uh, last Sunday, and he just hit me with this. So I just wanted to read this. What if God looks at our messes and sees beauty, just like a parent when their child first begins to walk? I'm sure if you were to ask the toddler what that moment was like, he or she would view it as a failure. Mom and dad use both feet to walk. They do it all day, and they never fall down. And here I am. I can't even take a few steps without falling on my butt. I am such a failure. But if the toddler were to listen to his parents, he or she would only ever hear praise and encouragement. The parents know that every step their child makes is the beginning of an exciting new stage of life, and their excitement mounts with every attempt. Attempt, not success. The parents view each step, wobbly though it may be, as the beginning of a new life. I think the father is the same way. While we might look at our life and see mistakes and imperfections, God sees us as sons and daughters, free of any blemish or sin. Our sin was killed with Christ and banished forever. So now each day of life is one in which the shame from our past should not exist. Each day is truly a new day. I wonder how the parents of that child would feel if they were to hear his or her view of themselves. I'd assume that they would be heartbroken that their child thought he was anything less than the best thing in the whole wide world. I mean, that's how they view him, so why would he choose to see himself as anything less than that? Religion and false humility teaches us to berate ourselves for each shortcoming we find, but God has only ever asked us to love. Doesn't scripture say, love your neighbor as yourself? If we make the assumption that the God of love wants us to love our neighbors well, then we must also assume that we must love ourselves well. And who better to teach us than the person who sees us better than ourselves anyways? So yeah, so this week, just let's ask God to show us how he sees us. Which is your true identity. Yep. Thank you. That was perfect. So we're going to say, a, I'm going to uh, just kind of say a blessing on us. And as always, if you uh, need prayer, want prayer, then please see one of the folks standing around the, uh, the sides. You want to stay and just worship, stay and have some quiet, please do so. And if you need to go, that's fine as well. So, Father, I thank you for how you see us, which is so different than the way we all, most of the time, see ourselves. Father, I pray for a revelation that 
those gathered here today, whether now or some point this week, will begin to realize how you do see them and how much you love them and how wrong our own thoughts and impressions are. So bless each person, Father. Give you thanks and praise for each life, each family represented here. Touch and bless each one. And as they go out into uh, whatever it is that is before them this week, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, make them a light in a dark world. Allow them to bring your love and your joy to bear upon all of the dark situations they encounter. Give you thanks and praise. And I just offer this time up to you now. In Jesus' name.